Tonight, we welcome Taj Hittenberger and Roy Blodgett, founders of a project called Bioregional Orientation. Bioregional Orientation organizes workshops, conversations, and outings in the Russian River watershed and northern coast range with the intention of exploring the ecological relationships, plants, animals, and history of these areas. Tonight, we'll explore the philosophies, experiences, and values of the individuals behind this project and learn why their paths so far have led them to found Bioregional Orientation. Please welcome to the program Taj Hittenberger and Roy Blodgett. Thank welcome. you so much. Thank you. Cool. Uh, I think I would ask uh, co-host Tom Gaffey a question yeah. first. Sure. You've spent a lot of time in Gualala. You've yes, spent a lot absolutely. of time in Trinity. Trinity, absolutely. Uh, you love these places. Usol. Have you guys been up to Usol? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Powerful times there. Absolutely. What appeals to you about being out in nature? Um, you know, uh, it's uh, pretty much these guys summed it up. Who wrote How to Be Alone? I wrote that. Yeah. It, um, basically, that kind of sums it up for me. That's uh, the way I grew up. It's, it's really weird. So Taj and Roy brought a collection of poems. Poem that, that Roy wrote, uh, How to Be Alone, and it talks about chasing lizards and, and being out listening and, and, and tracing frogs and, and uh, looking up at Pleiades at night and uh, watching the birds in the morning. Oh, uh, and you can make it up to uh, Usol at right times of the year and actually watch the Elks, uh, uh, and, which is an incredible thing. I, everywhere. You can make it to the Guala River and, and sometimes see a fish jump and maybe catch an otter still. It's not like it was, and which is why what you guys are doing is so important. Uh, and as I was reading this poem, How to Be Alone, uh, that Roy had written, uh, he talks about tracing the call of frogs and, and uh, chasing lizards. And I remember the days when you could lift a rock in in, uh, in my backyard and find a salamander. Mm. And they're getting so tough to find. So if you guys are bringing people out to uh, see these very things, this is, it's disappearing quickly. Even in places like Usol, one of my favorite areas has been so overrun with people now that, and let's face it, I've been one of those people uh, going up there for years. Uh, they've had to uh, cut a... A trail, and they've had to put benches in where uh, it, it, in a place that I that I feel sacrilege. It almost mm -hmm. feels sacrilege. It's up where the big mother tree is. Mm -hmm. and I think you know where I'm talking. I know that tree. Yeah. And they've they've actually it's gotten so there's been so many visitors up there in the last probably five or six years that they've decided they need to cut that trail in and make it a cleaner trail. And they put benches where uh, a fallen tree was such a glory. Actually, it was a big root. Mm -hmm. It was such a glorious place to sit. And um, so th these places are disappearing. Uh, nature is disappearing at, at an alarming rate. You guys are taking people out and showing them why it is so important and why it is so beautiful. And, uh, and you're writing about it in your poetry. It seems like bioregional orientation is a culmination of the paths you've both been on for a long time in your lives. Uh, you've put a lot of energy into it. It's something of great value to you. And it seems like it's of great value to you on a lot of different levels. I mean, there's community building, there's education, there's learning about place, there's learning about our responsibility to place, there's learning about things that we as a civilization have done that are not entirely respectful of mm -hmm. place, and there's, there's so much to it. So I guess that was like a million prompts I just put out. Mm. 
But anything that comes to mind in terms of what led you to found this project, why you feel it's important, and, and how it is a culmination of stuff you've cared about? At least for me, it's, it's a way of kind of um, paying homage to the, to the things that have helped carry me through um, the dark times of my lives, you know, the, the different, um, you know, disconnected moments, you know, my connection to nature and um, to, to dear friends has been something that has been um, consistently uplifting. And um, I think that for me, I feel um, a calling to serve these forces that I, I see as being vital to to um, human life and um, and d- deeply connected to all of us. And I think that it should be something that everyone should feel a connection to and um, or at least an ability to access the connection to. Um, so yeah, that feels important to me is to just um, to kind of give back to those things that have um, sustained my life and um, and hopefully you know, encourage others to find those sustaining relationships as well. Cause I think that we live in a, in a world and a culture and a time and place that creates a lot of isolated people that, um, that don't always feel like they have connections. Um, and it's hard to feel that way when you have, you know, connections with the, the birds in your backyard and the, the plants in your backyard. As far as how, how we made the, the program or the, whatever it is, regional orientation um a lot of that had to do with us um staying in conversation and helping each other identify what our gifts are um and i what roy said about serving these things that have in many ways saved our lives um a big part of that was not only wanting to serve them but i helping each other identify how to serve them mm-hmm. um and a lot of that was about just being outside and sharing the knowledge that we have um, and sharing the connection that we have and, you know, taking each other to our spots and saying, this is a tree I've been in relationship with for many, many years, or these are rattlesnakes that I've been in relationship for many, many years, and they have been a huge guide to me, and this is a really sacred spot to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to share that with other people and share those stories and, um, yeah, introduce that, that to people, introduce that type of connection and create a space where that uh that feels valuable mm-hmm. yeah and uh, speaking of relationship with trees uh so this morning started for me uh trimming the trees in my backyard and uh one of the redwoods that i was trimming was a redwood that i planted when i was in fourth grade beautiful and so this is like 50 51 or so years later yeah, and it's such a glorious tree and also a tree that my brother had planted when he was in fourth grade so that's amazing and they'll be here so long yeah they will they'll be here <laughs> way beyond my years yeah uh, they're they're all look they're both looking strong they've got they've uh built themselves a little grove they've planted some friends and uh, it's just a beautiful little uh Redwood Grotto, kind of. Beautiful. You brought up isolation, mm-hmm. and you, Tom, you brought up uh, relationships that you have with trees in your very backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- Does the table agree that the isolation that so many of this generation feel has to do with a disconnection from nature, has to do with uh, technological uh, isolation? There's absolutely. a lot of people who point to that, and yeah. I'm curious your yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah, I would say absolutely. I think that... Um, 
uh, we live in a time when you you know you have your social networks and but they're networks they're not they don't serve the same function as a community you know there's not the same um, accountability and presence that um, a community serves in in a social network um, and so while you are able to you know send a message to your friend who's across the country and you know and have them receive it almost instantly. Um, it's not the same as sitting down with that friend and having a conversation or living nearby them and having um, a relationship where you observe each other. And you feel for your life that going into nature and developing a connection with that surrounding can bring you out of isolation? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, um, and I think that what we're trying to, you know, contend with is that um, we believe that you, you can access these kinds of connections with, with anything around you. Um, it's not just, you know, certain trees that are very special, but it's, it's anything that is around you that, um, that we live in dynamic relationship with everything. So it's, it's, a, it's trying to affirm a paradigm of interconnection as opposed to separatism. Do you think we live in times of separatism right now? Absolutely. I think that a lot of the atrocities that we are able to commit to each other and to um, the biosphere that we live off of um, can only occur with... Um, an illusion of separation with um, um, a disconnection between um, actions and consequences and um, not seeing ourselves as, you know, intimately related with the consequences that are occurring around us. I think that that's a common thing. And it's harder to have that kind of mentality about these things when, when you know, you see, um, when you have the kind of re- receptivity to, to an awareness I think that a big part of what we're doing is, is it's about awareness. Um, and I think that Taj can speak to that well, actually. Like, let, let's say the, the practice of awareness in the context of bird language. Um, you, can, you can sit out every morning and do a sit spot for 10, 15, 30 minutes um, and just listen to the birds and start to identify the birds and identify the different calls and see how they're interacting <clears throat> And you're not just learning how birds interact. You're learning how to identify cues and uh, the way that different voices are responding to each other. And that is directly relatable to how, how we interact with ourselves and with each other and with our place. And that awareness practice helps us in being aware in every other respect of our life. It reminds mm-hmm. me of a little debate you and I had at a Japanese restaurant in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, you were discussing the confl- the internal conflict you had uh, in deciding to go to UC Berkeley. You had some friends, uh, Roy included, who went to a school called Weaving Earth, which I'd like to learn more about in a moment. It's awesome. Um, but you opted to go to UC Berkeley, and you were feeling um, troubled, at least when the decision came, about the, you know, the privilege that you had versus other people that you knew didn't and how some people who were just as, just as talented, if not more, uh, were unable to take advantage of an opportunity like that. And that caused you some, some trouble. And for that reason, if I recall correctly, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for that reason, you were considering maybe not going. Yeah. You, you had a lot of inner turmoil about it. And the debate came from, uh, my, my counter argument was <clears throat> that I, I don't, believe that that is a sound reason for not taking advantage of an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to be mindful and I think it's important to be aware and alert of the privilege that you have and the good fortune that you have and that you, you should take advantage of it and then use the knowledge, power and influence that you gain from that to shape a better world. 
uh, because if you don't, or if one doesn't, then someone else is going to, and that person may be less aware than you. And so I, I I just, um, I think that's important. And I think awareness is important. And I think that if the people in positions of power who legislated and made decisions that impact societies, um, all had a heightened level of awareness for consequences and honesty and reality, uh, we would probably be in a better place than where we are on a lot of fronts. Yeah. And those consequences don't even, you know, it's not just what consequences are they going to have right now, the legislative decisions that you're talking about and many other decisions. It's not only how is this going to affect us right now, but how is this going to affect the river or the watershed that my child might require to live or how might it affect the forest that my great, great, great grandchild will live in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we think of things, I mean, that's like a consistent thing is just the, the scale of, of time that we view um, things with the, the, the narrative that we inherit in that sense is very short sighted. Um, you know, and, and that's another part of what I mean, you know, and having awareness and having um, an understanding of consequences and, and um, tracking that is, is um, thinking things on a much different time scale of time, you know, uh, than just our own lives and, um, or just our own week or our own hour or our own day. You know, I think that um, there's a, there's definitely something to be said for being present and being here now. And there's also something to be said for being present here now and aware of how, how, you're here now affects a lot more than just right now. Um, and I think you make a really beautiful point about privilege, you know, and that is something that, um, has definitely been with me a lot, you know, in, in, in juggling this, this privilege of, of, um, living this time where, you know, people that, that are like Taj and I have, um, different power and privilege than a lot of people. Um, let me read something from your website and then mm-hmm. you can jump off it. Uh, you, you, you say this on the website. I don't know who wrote it, but mm-hmm. some, probably one of you did. It says, as budding ecologists that recognize the value of differentiation within regenerative systems and aspiring allies to marginalized voices, we feel it is of profound importance to acknowledge the unearned power and privilege we possess as white men within a corrupt system, which has long contributed to the silencing and oppression of marginalized individuals and communities. So that ties right into it. Where I differ from some of my generation and maybe people closer to your age who are of a similar mindset to all of us is I I don't I I think it is not a good expenditure of time to just beat yourself up about that constantly. Uh, And and I but and and no disrespect to people who do that. But I I do have some Mm. friends who it troubles them, the privilege Mm. they were born into. And I would just say, try to channel that. It's good that you're feeling some Mm -hmm. discomfort and channel that and, and make a difference. I completely agree. I think that um, I think that you consistently, or I consistently observe um, individuals with privilege working as hard as they can to forsake their privilege. And that's the whole thing about privilege is that you can't forsake it. You didn't acquire it. You, you were born with it. You inherited it. You know, it isn't earned um, in most cases, you know, especially in the type that we're talking about here. And so, um, yeah, the best thing you can do is leverage it um, to, to uplift marginalized voices, you know, and, um, and that statement that we wrote is, it's very easy to, you know, go in the nature connection communities and kind of go to, go to naturalist hikes. And a lot of times you'll look around and you'll see the quintessential naturalist image of, um, white men and white people. Um, and I think that it's important for all people to feel uh, like nature is accessible and, um, 
I think that that's important to us. Like accessibility with what we're trying to do is really important and intersectionality is really important to us. So we're, we're still, we're not perfect in, um, in, in necessarily figuring out our ways to appeal to all audiences and everything, but we're, we're listening and we're learning and committed to, um, to showing up for that conversation and um, changing our behavior to act in accordance with greater values like that. Yeah. On the website, and Tosh, I think you designed the website. There's a quote mm. from uh, Lilla Watson, and it says, If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. It's one of two quotes on the website. Why would you include such a quote on the website? I think Rose should take that one. Yeah, I chose that quote. Um, and I chose that quote because I think that it um, it acknowledges interconnection and interrelationship. It acknowledges that um, that these that the problems of marginalized peoples, um, marginalized communities, um, and you can think of nature, all of nature now as a marginalized system. You know, the, um, we are we're pushing our um, na- neighbors to the margins, our wild neighbors to the margins, and um, um, it acknowledges that our liberation is tied up with theirs that um that we are we're, we have illumination required of us to um and that and that they hold the key to that yeah. seems like there's a profoundly like political strain that you see between marginalized people and the marginalized environment is that too much of a leap no no i think that that's absolutely what we're suggesting i think that it's the same systems it's the same um values that that allow for the the um oppression of natural systems also allow for the oppression of certain groups of people um and it's again i think it again relates to just um values that are separatist that um that are again just disconnected from consequences and um you know i think that um you know, you look at the, the people that um, come back from war that, are, that have the most severe trauma and the most um, severe post-traumatic stresses, you know, and all of this are, are often the people who have committed atrocities, you know, um, that not necessarily have been victim to them or witnessed them, but have, have committed them themselves. And you recognize that um, for those of us who are benefiting um, and are perpetrating these, um, these, these oppressive behaviors, knowingly or not, um they're damaging us as well you know it's it's not um no one truly wins from domination you know it's it's degrading to all life it's just when you talk about how nature is being marginalized it just reminds me a lot of the political discourse that we've seen especially in the last three or four years with the black lives matter movement and all that a lot of the phrases and uh, ways that you tilt it. It just it really reminds me of the political uh, reality we have in the, in the country. And you don't often hear that applied to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest discussion you hear about nature uh, politically is, is global warming real or not? Which right. must drive you absolutely insane. Yeah, I don't necessarily. I mean... I mean, because you can't even come to a consensus about how, uh, if the situation is bad or not, let right. alone how we're going to work together to, to solve it. And the steps that are put in play uh, s- seem to be very incremental. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you could say the same thing for, um, yeah, the, the, the political situation with um, Black Lives Matter and, and how, um, you know, we're, we're changing things in- incrementally. And yet the systems are still in place. 
So I'd ask the table, uh, does anybody have any ideas, uh, some revolutionary ideas to solve these things, nature-wise or uh, <laughs> body politic-wise? <clears throat> how radical do you want to go? Well, how radical, are, how, <laughs> how radical do we have to go? Pretty, pretty radical, yeah. Capitalism's out. Industrial growth society is out, too. Mm-hmm. Say that again? Industrial growth society is out. Mm-hmm. We, we can't infinitely grow on a finite world. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like it, it, it can't, can't work. Tom, you talk history sometime on here. Yeah. We, Roy, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago. You talked about how, uh, or one, it was one of you two, mm-hmm. about how the reason like empires fail is because one of, part of the definition of an empire is it keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Isn't that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. If you, yeah. Yeah. We're talking about civilization. Um, and yeah, an empire specifically that, that, um, these things are defined by, um, needing to, um, rust export or import um resources they they um they outgrow their land base and because of that they're not sustainable if you if you um if you're you know beyond your carrying capacity on a land on a land base um or within a natural system you're on borrowed time you know and so you have the 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 one rule of civilization you know that you can trace is is that all civilizations have failed eventually you know they've all every single civilization that has occurred so far has eventually fallen and failed and and there's the tendency has been to you know then the next thing comes along and but there's this boom and bust cycle essentially yeah is that why you're an anarchist yeah partly yeah i'm I'm an anarchist because i was born into it i uh i've just had that feeling all my life um it's nothing i've chosen <laughs> but, it's not, uh, so it's not a learned thing no it's not a learned thing i never have felt that the that the right of of one to decide over another has ever been present mm. and uh i still don't believe that uh that's nothing i've yeah nothing i've learned it's just something i've always felt which made me a difficult child but uh roy's exactly correct if you if you like to read history or follow history geez who do you want to follow uh here in the west uh, the Anasazi is is a great study on how you can outgrow your environment. Uh, you can look at and the, what is the Anasazi? Th- this was a group of of uh, Indians, of uh, Native Americans, who were living in the desert down in the uh, Arizona and uh, New Mexico area, and uh, they outgrew their uh, environment. Uh, there were too many people for the water, and too many people for that uh, ecosystem to grow their food. But we know they were here. And we can follow uh, the environmental history uh, to get some understanding that absolutely there were this number of people and they, it, the environment could not sustain them. Uh, and then you can go up into the plains and look at how the, the plains Indians were actually doing quite well living within their environment, but they were ranging a very large area. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, more people joined them and totally ruined it, uh, totally killed off their, their uh, hunting stock, mm-hmm. uh, killed off their uh, watersheds, uh, built in ways that was just not sustainable. And, and uh, those poor people were, were lost to history. Uh, then you can go, but you can go farther back and look at the Romans. Uh, they just, they knew that they needed to continue growing to sustain the uh, appearance of wealth that they had and the comforts that they had in Rome. And they were just having to go farther and farther out and take more uh, riches and more um, uh, you know uh, what they needed from other other locales, and eventually it just they outgrew their themselves. Uh, Greece, uh, you can follow Alexander and, and uh, take him all the way around the Mediterranean and see how 
that was not sustainable in the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at history, yes, we have outgrown uh, our, our environments every time. Part of that, I think, absolutely, we need to figure out a way not to have quite so many of us. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, with the advent of, of uh, good medicine, uh, with uh, better growing practices, we are able to be uh, reproducing it at incredible amounts. Does the table agree with that, that, that overpopulation is a problem? Or do you think if we had sustainable systems in play, population doesn't matter quite as much? I think that um, there's pretty much no way around the notion that we're, we, are, we have exceeded our carrying capacity on the planet right now. I think that... Um, and it's growing faster than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's and a really fun exercise if you've never line. done it to go on and look at world population. Oh, yeah. Uh, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, 50 years ago. It's insane. Yeah, it's yeah. it's totally insane. And it's, I mean, I think that you could you could pretty much connect every single issue um, that we've, like any, any of the big environmental issues, but any, I mean, I think that a lot of the social issues as well, you could connect pretty much all of them to overpopulation. Yeah. It's, it's in some way related. Pulled it up online. All right, here we go. In 1804, we had 1 billion people. That's when we reached 1 billion. With a B. With a B. 123 years later, in 1927, we hit 2 billion. (laughs) In 33 years, 1960, (laughs) we hit 3 billion. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. In 1974, 14 years later, we hit 4 billion. In 1987, 13 years later, 5 billion. And in 1999, which was 12 years, we hit 6 billion. And currently, the world population clock is at 7.4 billion. Mm-hmm. It's getting crowded. Yeah. And, and what happens with that is you get horrible mismanagement of resources. So sure, we might have better growing practices, but they're serving us now and not 20, 30, 50, 100 years down the line. Mm-hmm. And same, same with forestry practices. Sure, we're producing a ton of wood but we're producing one type of wood per area Mm -hmm. and no other living being is really benefiting from that. And anything that we're not betting benefiting from, we're wiping off earth to replace with the things that do benefit us. Yeah. You know, you're describing the, 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 the shift from polyculture to monoculture. Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, it's like you, you look at, we're looking at things on an ecological relationships perspective the tendency towards health in an ecological system is um is diversity or complexity and i think the same goes for social systems i i truly believe that diversity is incredibly important and and differentiation is a regenerative um a a regenerative force um and yeah now we we live in an era of homogenization you know where you, you have you know, big agriculture is, um, the tendency is monoculture. And of course we've seen that this is not sustainable over, over a given time span that you're depleting the, the, um, the soil that you're living on your, your, um, it's not the best use of the water. It's just generally wasteful and it produces the maximum amount of a certain crop. But, um, but for how long? Well, this all kind of, if you zoom out enough leads to the point of, what is the point of our existence? Mm. Should we be trying to fight back the unbeatable tide, mm-hmm. which it would kind of seem in your incremental way, because any one of us can only be incremental, but it seems like you're trying to fight back a little bit, raise awareness, mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. people on board. Um, 
or do you just do what it seems like you've witnessed so mm-hmm. many do, which is just like, hey, we might as well just have a good time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, pretty, right? pretty soon there's going to be 20 billion people <laughs> and we're all going to die. So I yeah. guess I guess that's, that's a, a question I'd have for you. I mean, do mm-hmm. you feel hopeless sometimes? Sure. Yeah, I think that, um, that hopelessness um, finds its way in at times. And I think that... Um, why? Because because we love, you know? I mean, I think that it really, I mean, for me, it's it's that I want to serve the things that I love. And if I'm seeing the things that I love, um, and I do see the things that I love, I think that most of the things that I love in the world are in decline right now and that are, are fighting an uphill battle. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that I, I want to be an advocate for things that I love. I'm I'm learning how to do, to do that in the best way that I can, and I think that um, <coughs> despair is it's it's seductive in a way. I think that, I think that um, that it would be very easy to just yeah yield to to the the enormity of the task that we're facing and just despair and just eddy eddy in that despair, and um, and it would serve nothing. And it certainly wouldn't serve love. And so I I try not to go there. I would also say that feeling it isn't bad. No, I don't think that feeling is bad. Feeling it, super good. If you're going to open up to the, the reality of what's happening to the world, you're going to feel horrible despair. And that's going to suck. But you got to talk about it. Because there's mm-hmm. tons of other people that are feeling the same exact way. And talking about it and feeling like you're not alone and being able to process that is so so enlivening and Taj is speaking to just the need for a different relationship to, to, to have with um with our grief and um i think that a lot of the reason why we why we do tend to eddy in despair um when we when we get there and why why so many of us are depressed and can't get ourselves out of it is because we don't have um we don't inherit healthy cultural tendencies and values and rituals for um expressing our grief and being witnessed on our grief and um that's a profoundly important thing I think it's it's so important for us to be because it's part of our humanity. It's part of who, who all of us carry it, and all of us carry it like a secret, or most of us do. It's really interesting to listen to you, um, like give advice on dealing with the despair that comes with the environmental decline, mm-hmm. um, and, and the exact advice that you give about that, I would give to somebody who's feeling despair about any psychological or personal issue that's going on in their yeah. life communicate you're not alone it's okay uh it's it's horrible what you're experiencing is horrible and i acknowledge that but the only way out is uh, uh, and have it be a happy ending hopefully is to communicate and find solace and community and love and all that it's an affirmation that you're alive absolutely yeah. it's just funny to me all the connections one can make with the environment and our our place as you put it um that relate to the personal things we deal with every day and of course you would probably hear that and kind of shake your head a little bit and say of course how could it not but i feel a great disconnection from it i don't look at it that way often mm-hmm. like you talking about it like this is is enlightening me if that makes sense mm. Because for me, um, I, I appreciate nature, but I don't have the relationship with it like you folks do, where I, I feel despair mm-hmm. when I read an article about how bad we are doing as a society and how mm-hmm. fucked up it's going to be in 50 years. So I guess part of the journey here is getting everybody on the same page and uh, mm-hmm. helping them realize that it is valid to feel a despair about this and to work together to try to correct it. I, I also think that it's, 
you just said we uh you know we feel a connection to nature and there's a lot of grief in that and that you don't feel it when you read about it i would argue that there i'd i don't feel it as much when i read about it as much as when i go out and i see you know a huge redwood that's been cut down or i see some wetlands that have been totally paved over um places that i have a personal connection with Mm -hmm. um it's so much it's so much more intense when they're you know when there's that that physical connection here's an interesting uh uh, observation so um petaloom on the east side um used to be just every every spring it would almost the entire plain would go yellow with this incredible mustard Mm -hmm. weed uh and i thought it was just the most beautiful thing and uh, so when I was a maybe 10 or 11, maybe a little younger, my dad and myself and my godfather, and probably my brother and, and some of my godfather's sons were heading out Washington Street. And we got to about where the airport is, Little Petaluma Airport. And it was spring and it was all bright mustard. And he motioned over to the right. We were heading east. And he motioned over to the right. And they were all empty fields at the time. And he said, there's going to be 10,000 houses there. <laughs> I could not imagine what 10,000 houses would look like. Now I can. Mm-hmm. They are there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I despair at that. At the same time, I must remember that um, my dad and his friends, and I worked in it too a little bit, uh, helped to build that. Mm-hmm. And um, wow, it was an incredibly beautiful plane. But the thing is, uh, as I grew older and realized that, yes, we've lost all that mustard, the mustard itself was not natural to this area. The mustard itself was brought in mm-hmm. by settlers in the 1800s. And so I'd never really seen uh, what... Uh, I, I'd read an essay about uh, when the Crane Boys uh, came from Missouri to uh, Sonoma County, and they were standing in these fields of this high grass, and they were running their hands over the tops of the grass and realizing, oh, my God, This is so fertile. This is such a beautiful area. We can grow here. We can build our farms and we can grow here. Crane Canyon Road, the Crane Mm -hmm. uh, Melon and all of that. Uh, That was those those boys, and I believe they were from either Virginia, but I think they were actually from Missouri. Um, And what a beautiful place they saw. And what a beautiful place I saw when I was a kid. Again, um, salamanders were all over the place. Gopher snakes, even rattlesnakes occasionally. Deer. Um, raccoons, all the raccoons are back. Foxes <laughs> and all of these things that uh, that you know I used to see as a kid absolutely disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't turn over, and that's such a sad thing for the kids here. You can't turn over a rock and find a salamander, but it used to be the easiest thing in the world. Right, the little tiny green tree frogs and all that stuff that I got to see as a kid um, are all gone now. And yeah, and and I despair about that. I I feel bad about that. I it's. Uh, and part of it is that I was part of the generation that absolutely, uh, you know, I mean, we were we were here from uh, 50s up till now. In the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it was just a, uh, a building uh, orgy. Mm-hmm. And, and not just in Petaluma, all up and down California. I think uh, 
we're doing that now out in the Midwest. We're doing it down in Texas and Arizona and all of that as, well, as we grow well, more. We've been doing it for a while, yeah. I look at it as just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do Absolutely. something. Absolutely. And I, I think that is a, a but, thread that goes through all of this stuff. And yet there's another part of that balance, though. Um, so I'm talking about the east side. And, and as I watched it happen, yeah, I hated it. And we used to make all kinds of comments about the, the, the ticky-tacky houses they were building and all that. At the same time, so many people that I know and love live there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, there's it just it's it, there's a balance of, of the two. Um, yeah, because I mean, because we can't control the populations. Like we have no right. control over right. the jumps in billions over the last hundred years. Well, we can control the systems and maybe the way we do it now. If if we think about it, I would argue to an earlier point connecting here that. Um, if there had been people in the room making these decisions that had a level of awareness as to how the actions and the building and the development they're going to do is going to affect the generation 50, 100 years down the line, perhaps there would have been some different planning. And maybe we didn't have enough expertise at that time. Maybe there was nobody equipped to make those calls, but maybe there were. Part of what we're, we're trying to do also is, is to give a, a, a different perspective on the time scale, you know, and, and, and to like when we're in these places, say like um, this place wasn't like this Mm-mm. 50 years ago and it definitely wasn't like this 150 years ago. No. And this is well, this is what we've lost, you know, and, you know, the, the Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa is, is a, was a vast plain, you yes. know, and there were there were pronghorn antelope and tule elk and there were grizzly and bears. Bears, yeah. There were grizzly bears. I mean, we Not don't have a, a grizzly bear left in California. No. That's, is that true? That's true. We don't have a single grizzly bear left in California. It's on our, it's on a California flag. It's the Bear Republic. That's the grizzly bear. Do you know when the last grizzly bear mm-hmm. was? I think it was in 1920 or early 20s. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. That was when the last grizzly bear was, was shot. And they were more abundant here than anywhere else in mainland United States. They were more abundant here than anywhere else. And sorry we're getting off topic, but I think it all relates. I think that it's all about people being aware that their decisions have consequences 100 years down Mm -hmm. the line Mm -hmm. and that people can see it all around them, whether they're out at a preserve that doesn't look the way it used to Mm -hmm. or whether they're in downtown Santa Rosa. Well, you know, so there's there's a mindlessness that comes with uh, even relating to the beauty of it. Uh, and And I have to go back to Luther Burbank who uh, was one of our biggest advertisers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came and he saw and he, and he told the world how beautiful this area was. And in, his, in essence, started inviting people as well. It wasn't his intention to see it turn into this, um, but indeed, here we are. And so even those who love nature so much, I've, you know, I, I used to take a lot of people up camping and doing what you guys were doing, and I'm doing it less because I'm not as comfortable with what with, with showing so many people those places anymore. Mm-hmm. And again, it gets back to the mother tree at Usol. Uh, it is such a glorious place, and I love showing people this beautiful spot and turning them on the spirituality that you could find. But we're loving it to death now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, have you been up to that tree since they've started uh, the work up there? I haven't mm-hmm. been since they started work. I heard about the work, but I haven't yeah. been up there. Now you start getting into the tricky social thing of like, who does this space belong to? Yeah, you know? and, and what like, is should, respectful? Should, 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 well, that's true. Yeah. yeah, but it's like you know we're in the Phoenix, and the Phoenix is always been run with the intent, at least in the last thirty-three yeah. years, that this is anyone's building. <laughs> is you may not like the person, uh, but it's it's their building, just like it's your building, yeah. and it's their planet, just like it's your planet. And it gets kind of tough. Yeah, uh, and 
and that that uh that question of who decides what it means to conserve something has run through the 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 history of conservation in the west since it started um because they're in in conserving lands in the creation of yosemite and all of these national and state parks that we have indigenous people had to be relocated they had to be taken out of those parks to keep them pristine but those people were stewarding that land far better than the national and state government is i'm going to read a statement from your website i'm curious all three of you if it troubles you and the statement goes Furthermore, as residents of the North Bay, we recognize the fact that we live on occupied lands forcibly taken from the First Nations of this continent, including but not limited to the Pomo, Coast Miwok, and Wapo peoples. Does that trouble you? (sighs) It troubles me. You know, I've been reading some, uh, what I'd grown up believing first about uh, Father Junipero Serra and and, uh, uh, General Vallejo, Mariano Vallejo. And uh, what I'd read first uh, was the fourth grade version, and it sounded sensible enough to me. And then what I found out later... What's uh, the fourth grade version for those well, who Well, the fourth grade graduate? version is that, uh, that uh, Junipero Serra and, and, uh, had come up to uh, spread Christianity and build these missions. And, um, and, that's, and we went and saw the missions... And we saw the old adobe, and we heard about uh, Mariano Vallejo, who was actually a Californio. He was, what was he, born in like Monterey, I think. Mm -hmm. But I didn't even find that out. I knew that he came up with Mexico. I didn't realize that he was actually a Californian at birth. And, uh, but then as you you get older, you realize that they came up and and pretty much enslaved uh, the Indians that were left in this area in 1833. Then I found out, in 1833, I'd, been, I'd read that influenza had wiped out 99% of the Miwoks and, mm-hmm. and Pomos that were living in the area. Uh, and uh, the children were taken and moved to a dormitory in Sonoma and, uh, you know, taught to be Christians and uh, held from their families and, and then moved uh, farther away and still never treated properly. But then I read an essay a couple months back where it seemed like it was a little more benign than that. You know, I just... Uh, Who's telling the story? Uh, uh, yeah, right. It was uh, it was a story of it was actually uh, more of a, a history of General Vallejo himself, mm-hmm. um, which there's some indications that uh, one side of my family uh, probably were maybe up here with uh, General Vallejo mm-hmm. and um, came as as a Californio as a Mexican. At that point, they were citizens of Mexico, and it helped to. Uh, uh, secure this area so that the Russians didn't move any farther south. That seemed to be the reason, really, that uh, that General Vallejo had come up, that Mariano Vallejo had come up. And uh, uh, Junipero Serra, uh, kind of the Catholic Church, had its own idea of what they were doing here. But in fact, what it was doing was moving people. It was killing people. It was moving them off the, uh, the property that they were actually, you're right, uh, in, when Roy says that they were doing a much better job, or Taj, of stewarding the land in those days, they needed to. Uh, they absolutely were living off of the rivers. They were living off of, of the Delta area. Mm-hmm. That Because this that we live, Petaluma is, was part of the Delta. Mm-hmm. And we live in what should be a marshland quite often. Mm-hmm. And um, the Indians that were living here in, in the eight, early 1800s, up to the early 1800s, had managed to hold it together quite nicely. 
uh, best we can tell. We'll never know. We'll never know where, where they would be had Europe not moved over here and we had not grown in such vast numbers. We have no idea what would be here and how they would have done. But if they had kept going the way they were going, um, this would probably be quite a nice place. Yeah. Not that it's not a nice place. I love Petaluma with all my heart. But we're losing It'd be our a very different place. It'd, <laughs> It'd be, be a very, very different, place. different place. How do you folks feel about uh, essentially what, if you read your website, sounds mm-hmm. like crimes against humanity? I think that um, it's gen- it's genocide. It's it's yeah. um, I think that that's not a, you know, people shy away from that term a lot on this subject. Um, it's not. That's not um, that's not putting it lightly. You know, this is um. California, Northern California was um, a center of one of the worst genocides in history, and um, and the fact that it's not regarded as such by more people is is um, shameful, on a, in, in, my, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, it's it, it it comes to the privilege thing again, where it's you know, Taj and I, you know, we um we didn't participate in the genocide and yet we um inherit its plunder you know we are we are the inheritors of um of all that 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 took place you know i think that um um whether whether by intention or not you know it's like my 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 actual blood relatives were not here at that time blah 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 but the 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 reality is that what occurred here in the north bay um with um with European um, settlers coming in and um, indiscriminately killing um, the indigenous people of this area and and forcing them off their lands, um, that and was done for their culture. That, yeah, and dissolving their culture was done for our benefit. Ultimately, you know, um, our benefit, you know, and um, and as as the quote unquote benefactors of this. Um, this thing that occurred i see it as um as our responsibility all of us who are benefactors to reconcile what occurred you know to and, and to at the very least acknowledge what occurred um to educate ourselves about what occurred and the fact is that um those people are still here and the fact that they're still here is a testament to their durability and their um their resilience because every measure imaginable was taken to ensure that those cultures were no longer here. I would also add that not only is it our duty to, um, to let those stories be told and let those voices talk, but also to really, really do our work analyzing what mindsets led to that type of situation and those actions and do our best to dissolve those. Right. And if we're complicit in these decisions, if we don't use our voices and say, hey, this wasn't my decision. Hey, I don't I don't agree with this decision. Um, then we are complicit. We we um, you're on the side of the oppressor. We're, we're on the same side as the oppressor. You know, if we do not. Um, if we don't resist. We're on the same side, ultimately. It's you know, it's the same as like. You know, I, I think David Foster Wallace said a long time ago something about voting, and he said, um, "Oh, if you're if you're one of those people that says that, oh, you don't you don't participate in elections and you don't vote, um, <laughs> you're just kidding yourself because really all you've done is just is just double the value of some diehards' vote, or 
you've given a vote for the entrenched majority. I agree with that. And it, it speaks to my point that I made to Taj in that Japanese restaurant is it's like, you know, somebody's going to stand up. And if more yeah. of it, more of those types stand up than more of your types stand up, then those types are going to win. You've been outvoted. Yeah. And what we're calling for, again, is, is awareness about these things is that if, yeah, like we want to participate and we want to participate with an, with a different degree of awareness, you know, and we want everyone to participate. And if people had the awareness that, that a genocide occurred where they live, um, and that the um, effects of that genocide are still being realized on the people that it was carried out upon. I think that um, if they had that awareness, it would affect their decisions differently. Yeah, you, you need to be able to stand up and at least speak your mind and at least have the discussion and at least see if you can plant the seed in somebody else's minds to maybe have them just for a second see that there is another uh, uh, paradigm that you can look at and, and uh, something else other than the direction we're going and can we stop this direction i I think maybe what you're getting to is that people maybe wouldn't put the word genocide on it there i I think the more popular conception is like well the indians just you know they you know they couldn't really fight back they just weren't as strong so the the stronger people got the land and yet again i want to be sensitive to 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 the fact that we did that we didn't wipe out all of them that no. they're, they're still here, you know, and, um, and there are neighbors and, um, yeah, it's, it's, there, there's, you know, it's the, 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 the language of erasure of, of what happened is so strong that, you know, the language that we've inherited about it is just, is just that, um, there is, it's very difficult to have the awareness that, um, to both hold the awareness of what happened and hold the awareness of the, of how that relates to now. Mm-hmm. And what's still going on now. And that's my point is that is, is awareness and education and finding that window with people where it, it's not like you're being preachy and where they are yeah. also feeling like we can have a conversation about this. It's tough to like, especially with strangers to like mm-hmm. find that in to, you know, go into these deep pockets of conversation with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to, to, Spread awareness through a project like this, I think, is very positive. You have another quote on your website. I'm curious to know what it means and why it's important to you. It's by David White. It says, alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Seems like there is something to go into there mm-hmm. in terms of what we've been talking about tonight. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and just to use the word that we've been using tonight, but I think you could substitute alertness for awareness in that quote. And, and it could be awareness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Um, and I think that uh, familiarity is something that a lot of us um, want to feel. You know, we want to feel um, belonging and familiarity with um, with our surroundings. I think that a lot of people feel like they don't belong, and, and belonging is um, something that a lot of us are striving for, especially in, in our generation. And that's cool, um, but I think almost in that statement, there is a more important word that we might be overlooking, discipline. Mm. What do you do with that discipline? Are you mm-hmm. truly being disciplined in how you are alert? Are you mm-hmm. truly being disciplined in how you are aware? You know it, you feel it, you see it, you might be in despair of it. Then what? Mm-hmm. Is, are, are you being pragmatic about it? Mm-hmm. Is there discipline behind it? And will you move forward? Will you do something about it? Um, these guys are actually uh, doing their best to do that, it sounds mm-hmm. like. And, uh, and that's the point. Um, you can see it, you can feel it. Uh, then you need to do something. Mm -hmm. You need to do something about it. 
pretty much every action that you participate in on a daily basis has some effect on somebody else and the world around you. Absolutely. And that is not something we teach children at age five or 10 or 15 and was something that I didn't really become fully privy to until my twenties. And, and I, I'm still learning, you know, entering into a situation sometimes with somebody I'm like, Oh, I don't really like the vibe that person brings. But then, you know, time passes. I'm like, Maybe I bring a vibe to the situation, which then causes them to react a certain way, and then I don't like the way they react. I mean, there's so many layers to being aware. It's a lifelong process, but it's a very valuable one, even though it can be painful. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe one step further than that is recognizing that the things that you do don't don't just affect the people around you or um, the people that you're interacting with, but but affect the the many other concentric rings of connections that you have. So I might be talking to Tom about something and it's going to affect Roy. Um, and that's, that's the like interconnectedness that we're trying to, to talk about here. I think that having practicing awareness, um, which a lot of the, the things that we're trying to do with, with bioregional orientation, the exercises that we go through and the, um, just the things that we're trying to encourage and draw out and people, a lot of it has to do with um, reinforcing our awareness and our sensory awareness, but also our um, our cognitive awareness, you know, and our, our thinking and um, our, and our tracking of what we're thinking. Um, because you know that that feeds into our conduct. It be, feeds into how we um, how we make decisions. And I think that that if there's one thing that we can be doing that is a radical thing that um, that will have um, impact it's invest in awareness um and and what i see at least personally is that um the type of awareness you know doesn't so much matter because it it transcends scale if you're investing in one type of awareness it'll 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 bleed into the next scale of awareness um and so to you know focus deeply on um say wildlife tracking or or um, bird language, which these are both two awareness practices that we um, that we you know use a lot. Um, I I think that that has a that has an effect on my awareness in in social situations and stuff because I'm 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 opening up a different sort of nuance and receptivity um, in those circumstances. So I think that what we're saying is that not only is awareness something that can beget better conduct in the world, but it is also something that creates and generates a sense of connection and belonging um, and, and disrupts that feeling of isolation that a lot of us feel. I don't know, Taj, if you'd be willing to read one of the poems you brought, but I think the one, I don't even know if it's a poem, but it's called Ask Where Your Answers Are Coming From. Oh, yeah. Uh, that kind of is touching on everything we've talked about in the mm. last half hour. So if you wouldn't mind reading that yeah, to can us. Can I say one thing about uh, awareness and familiarity? Please. Um, I, Roy kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, for me it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's a, a rattlesnake that you're visiting once a week or once a month or once a year or if it's a close friend. Um, the, the more aware you are, and the, the more you build that relationship, the more familiar you are, the better you are at reading what that relationship and what that other being needs. Mm-hmm. And the more aware you become of how you can, you can be in better relationship with that being and learn what its boundaries are and what its, 
uh, yeah, what its what its needs are and, um, and your responsibility. Yeah, and you become. And this this word might have a little weird tinge to it, but but you become a better servant to that thing and to that relationship, um, and that is again, it, it, you know, that's at least how we see a direct correlation between nature awareness practices and awareness from person to person and person to place. Speaking of uh, society and place, it's and, a bit long, uh, but it's good because it covers what we, we're talking about. We have about. time. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <clears throat> Uh, so just a little backstory, I guess. Um, this is a, it was a piece for a zine that I wrote and that I, it's all made on the computer, but it, it hasn't been printed yet and it's been sitting there for probably a year or so. Um, and I wrote it, uh, I actually just moved back to Sonoma County about a year ago now, maybe a little more than a year ago. And I wrote it in coming back. ask first what it means to belong to a place in conceptual and physical terms both in general and personally ask how it feels to belong to a place ask where you have felt or feel as though you belong what makes for this experience who decides whether or not you belong what are requirements for belonging what are inhibitors is safety a prerequisite to the belonging of individuals and collectives is purpose a prerequisite? Do we have duties to the places and communities we belong to? Who and what establishes these duties and who holds us accountable to them? What does belonging to a community or place look like to you? What images come to mind? Is belonging an active task or sensation or possibly even both? What arises within you when feelings of belonging weaken from time to time? Ask what could be creating this and whether similar causes reoccur or not. Ask how your reactions may be instinctual or conditioned by the many systems that have raised us. Ask how questions of belonging to place could also translate to questions of belonging to other aspects of our lives. Note the similarities and differences between them. Look towards other relationships in your lives, in your life in which you play a vital role. Parents, children, partners, compatriots, community, watershed, bioregion, self. How do you respond when your experience of belonging wanes in these other relationships? Does leaving for another place ever seem like a way of resolving these tensions? Does belonging to a place require living there with the intent to stay? What might a new place represent for you? What is it that your place is not and could not become given time and the collective effort of many individuals? Ask what it needs of its inhabitants and then what of that you are able and willing to offer. Ask the same of your present place. Make note of what you already know your place requires through your intimacy with it thus far. Compare the lists. Are you willing to do more for the new place? If so, why? If not, do you see a correlation between the extent to which you serve and support your place and your feeling of belonging to it? Could the factors that keep us from belonging to our current place 
also keep us from belonging to any new place? How do we work through this together? Ask this communally. Ask the same questions with the people who inhabit any place or space you wish to come into. It's a wonderful piece because it pretty much touches on almost everything we talked about over the last hour. And the only thing that I would add is that you asked a bunch of questions in there and you talked about um, community and, and, you know, trying to basically like find a place when maybe you should look internally and all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, the one thing I would say is you use the word purpose. You said is purpose necessary to a community, I think. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I would say, I don't know about that, but I would say, I think purpose is necessary to happiness. Mm -hmm. I would say that one needs to feel a sense of, of purpose and it doesn't have to be like you have a job. It just yeah. means like there's, there's a reason that I get up in the morning and there's something that I'm doing or people that I'm serving or things that I'm a part of that make this existence worthwhile. Yeah. I, I think people can interpret that however they want. For, for me, it was, uh, it was more like, do you need to have a, an, do you need to play uh, an irreplaceable role in your place? Um, do you need to serve a purpose that nobody else can fill? Um, do you need to be irreplaceable in a way? I, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You you know, uh, yeah. You know, um, th this is uh, a contemporary statement. Uh, if uh, First, uh, what I was keen on uh, was the part about uh, feeling the sense to need to belong. And that is something <clears throat> that I see down here every day at the Phoenix uh, Theater, at mm -hmm. the Phoenix Theater, uh, especially when dealing with teenagers, because uh, that sense uh, of uh, the, the feeling that you do need to belong is so strong in our teens and mm -hmm. our kids. Uh, and then but then uh, I started going back to what I remember about our history and, and about our, our earliest history Art typically absolutely the need to belong was so important if you were cast out of your family group uh, mm -hmm. you probably could not survive so this is something that goes very very deep in our subconscious I think uh, but these are things that as we've changed our lifestyles uh, we can and do cast out but uh, again in our subconscious as you watch it on the level of children and teenagers and even young adults uh, and every Friday and Saturday night in, in, a, in a healthy downtown area, down in the bar situation, in the entertainment situations, yes, uh, there is this subconscious absolute need to feel to belong. We don't think we need to belong, but as a matter of fact, uh, everything you eat, everything you wear, everything that you, uh, every street or house that you live in absolutely came from a collective so even though one might feel uh, the need to not belong, you still can't survive without belonging in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be touching on that belonging. And uh, it's easier for us to live apart, and it's easier, easier for us not to pay attention. But I think if you get back down to the archetype, uh, you realize, nope, we are still in that belonging mode. Cannot survive without it. Uh, boy, if I, because uh, I do, I, I've, I'm quite comfortable being alone. Uh, how comfortable will I be at the age of 90 being alone? Eh, it may not be so easy. And um, the sense the sense of the need to belong is real. Uh, you do need to have that. But you have a sense of faith that exceeds many people's, and I think yeah. that gives you a peace of mind, and, and not to go too deep into your, your philosophical and religious beliefs, but, but you, you have that as a grounding factor, yeah. and I think that when someone doesn't have that and there's not this sort of like reward on the other side, 
these issues I think huh. feel much more pressing. Um, yeah. And I think that's where your existential crises of people of our generation come into play a lot more where it's like, well, what, what is my purpose here and why am I here and, and, and who is my community? Yeah. Like in, in some pretty dark times, I I've been really into like, I'm going to run off to the mountains or I'm going to run off to a, a Buddhist monastery and I'm going to live by myself and I'm going to do my work and I, I don't need anyone else. And that's a, uh, it's it, if, well, first of all, it just feels a lot better to, to be in relationship. Um, and second of all, you, it, I personally think you serve a greater purpose when you're working with others and not trying to fix everything in yourself and in the world on your own. Like it, it just, it can't happen. And, and yeah. I think there's often this question of, you know, going back to some other conversations we've had of, you know, there's all this terrible stuff that's happening in the world. Oh my God, what do I do? And I think my first response is, well, you got to, you find other people, you work with other people. Don't, don't take anything on, on your own, even personal stuff. Cause that's an illusion anyway, you know, like, yeah. um, a lot, there are those people who deem themselves as uh, self-made men or, and women who don't need anybody who, who provide for themselves completely. But the fact of the matter is the, um, everybody has stood on somebody else's shoulders to get to where they're at. And mm-hmm. we all continue to do that, including those people who came before us and passed and we didn't even know. Um, and so that's another level of awareness. Uh, you cannot do anything in a vacuum in isolation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the very notion that you have a, a unique ability to do something without anybody else. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's delusional. Yeah. And again, and, and, and almost to, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny because you, you have the, that response to, to isolate when you feel this despair and you feel isolated, <laughs> which is, it's doesn't make any sense really, you know? Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like inherently we belong, right? It's like you were, you were saying, Tom, you know, there's inherently, we can't escape our belonging. Yeah. Um, and, and it's anytime we don't, we don't recognize it. It's an illusion in a sense. Yeah. And, um, I think that a lot of the times the reasons why we don't feel like we belong is because we're not treated with awareness and sensitivity. Um, and so we're again, treated as replaceable. Exactly. Yeah. Roy, you wrote a poem called how to be alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind reading that to us? Cause I think that ties in a little bit to what we've got going on here as well. Yeah, absolutely. How to be alone. As a boy, I learned there was no such pleasure as in being alone. I used to steal away at daybreak on an empty stomach, the whole day spent chasing lizards and tracing the calls of frogs to their sources, sometimes not returning until nightfall. Those days, I sought little understanding of the seasons, or the flowers, or stars, but by some vestigial miracle of the feral, patterns emerged anyway like the tracks of coyote, or a bloom of poppies, the call of a red-shouldered hawk on a winter morning, and the arc of Pleiades on a winter night. Now I see, for a child or a man, the gift of learning how to be alone is in finding no such bleakness exists. So actually, that ends on sort of a, a positive note. Mm. And 
how do we find that no such bleakness exists? I think that a, the formation of a project like this is, is a start. Mm-hmm. Developing communities, respecting place. Mm-hmm. Tell me what we have to be positive about in terms of everything we've talked about tonight. What, what, when you get out of bed in the morning, what makes you feel positive mm-hmm. about this existence? Because there's a lot to feel negative about. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I would say the one thing that I feel positive about is that a lot of these um, things that we're so terrified of are actually illusions. You know, these these things like, um, <laughs> you know, this, the terror of being isolated and being alone. You know, I don't I don't agree with these things. I don't see them as actually real. Um, and as for the way that those things affect things that are very real and have very real impacts, I think that... Um, it affirms, you know, any anything which is so close to death affirms life. You know, it affirms living now and and um, loving now. And, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's what keeps me going is just, yeah, staying the course. There's still so much to be joyful about in living, and there's so much grandeur and beauty to living. And... Um, and really, I think that investing in awareness and, and, um, and recognizing our connections to the things around us, you know, we're able to see that a lot differently and with more nuance than, um, than we would if we instead just allowed that despair to, to cloud everything out. I think in, in terms of the environmental stuff, um, not only around the world, but here there are many, many people doing really, really good work. Um, Sonoma County kind of seems like a hot spot of that. Um, I didn't really realize that until I did some research and there's so many individuals and so many groups and, you know, county agencies and nonprofit organizations that are doing so much work to, to conserve land and conserve species here. Um, and groups taking people out on the land. Yeah. <laughs> um, Such as bioregional orientation. Yeah, little plug. They won a Bohemian Award this year. Did you know that? Oh, far what out. What was the award really? for, by the way? Um, I don't know if it was a w- an award necessarily, but it was um, Best to Way to Orient Without a Compass, which I'm pretty sure is the title that they came up for us. <laughs> <laughs> also, one other thing. Not don't o- lose that point, though, because yeah, you were going not, in a good direction. Not only are a lot of people already doing that work, but everyone can contribute to that work. Nobody, every, everyone can be a caretaker and a steward in their own small way. And nobody's going to step in to solve these really big issues. It's going to take millions and millions of people doing really small acts to, to turn, turn around what we've, what, you know, the path that we're headed down right now. Absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about this point. Uh, It's like nothing matters, but also because nothing matters. Everything matters. Oh, this planet has been We're so alive. good to us. We're alive. We, we love. Have, We're we are alive. And, and, and the place that we live on is so beautiful. Uh, you can see it up close. When you go to, to Usal, you can see it up close. Uh, when, you're, when you're sitting on the cliffs above the Guala River and, and the sun has just started to go down and the sky turns this incredible crimson and uh, you've got the ocean. Oh, there's a spot you can stand where you can see the ocean on one side and a river and uh, a forest on the other, and you're right at the cusp of every power in this universe, right there, all of it together, meeting in one spot. And uh, you, if you feel the power of that, 
That's why you know a tree has a soul. Uh, how would that be to be a redwood for a thousand years? Rooted to this planet, feeling it as it, as it spins, feeling it as it moves around the sun, feeling it as, it, as it's hurtling through space. Whoa, that's such mm. a powerful thing. And if you can relate to that with these trees, then you know why it's worth saving. Mm-hmm. Um, my God, each one of those souls that have been here for so long and how glorious of an existence they must have. It must have. Uh, this planet itself has its own soul. And what's true is, and that's the other thing, that's why this with a glad heart, because if we can't maintain this planet and we all end up dying because our environment has, uh, we've destroyed our environment, guess what? Possibly a million years from now, there will be no signs of us, but this planet will still be here, and there will probably be rivers again, and there will probably be forests again, and all of it, this planet will go without us. How much do you love your children? How much do you love your grandchildren? How much do you love the children you will never meet? Um, I would just like to say... Oh, there's something so important, though. This is like unwrapping Christmas morning. We've gotten to this point now. There's the tree. There's the president of the tree. How do you unwrap it? How do you find you guys and go on one of your journeys? Well, that's in my outro, Tom, oh, which is going to okay. start right now. You got yours, and now I, I get okay, mine. Okay. Yep, and yours yep. was so good. Here's mine, though. <laughs> The last thing I'll read from your website is this. You say, quote, we are all unified in the aim to increase our understanding and caretaking of this wonderful place we call home. And I would just like to say, along with Tom, we thank you very much for taking yeah. the leadership position on this very and being much. so open with us here and talking about all the stuff that we talked about. Um, we don't often get to go so deep with people on so many topics, and it's <clears throat> super, super appreciated. Yeah, so very thank much. you very thank much you for, for coming. that. And to those thank listening... You. You can find Bioregional Orientation on Facebook, and you can go to bioregionalorientation.com to learn more about the project and how you can get involved. We encourage people to go find yeah, Bioregional Orientation online, Facebook, Instagram. It's a great website. Et cetera. <laughs> and, um, and that's it. So once again, thank you for your openness. Thank you for the conversation. And keep up the work because it is very wonderful. Cool. Will do. Thank you so thank much. Thank you.